You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. There's a verse in the book of Ezekiel. We read it in the Haggadah of Pesach. The verse is, Through your blood shall you live. Through your blood shall you live. And it's a verse that expresses the misu nefesh, the self-sacrifice that's necessary to bring the redemption. You live through your blood. And why is it said twice? One of the reasons is that just as the first redemption was achieved through blood, misu nefesh, blood, sweat, and tears, so too will the final redemption be that way. And so now we're in the partiot of the Exodus. And let's look at what happened there because that's the blueprint for what has to be done today. We're always of the mindset that we're gonna bring the redemption through politics. We're gonna vote for politicians and we're gonna make all kind of cheshbonot. We'll make deals, we'll make coalitions, we'll compromise here and there, get a good right-wing block. And somehow that's gonna be some kind of path to the redemption. We'll forfeit our principles for a good right-wing coalition. A lot of cheshbonot. Well, let's look what happened in Egypt this past Shabbat. We had nine plagues, nine plagues descended upon Egypt, and Pharaoh is reeling under the pressure. His own people are telling him, it's enough already. Don't you know that Egypt is lost? And so, finally, he capitulates, and he tells Moses, go already, go and worship the Lord. Just one thing, let your flocks and your herds stay behind. That's all I'm asking. You see, Pharaoh, he wants to save face a little bit. You know, just leave the animals. Now consider this, 210 years of slavery. The Hebrews have been told that they can leave freedom at last. Pharaoh has capitulated. He's got this one small condition. I mean, it's so unimportant when you compare it to Jewish freedom. All he's asking of the Jews is leave your flocks and your herds. Big deal. The Hebrews, they're bursting with joy and anticipation. They're waiting for Moses' reaction to agree to it. And then, voila, there'll be an agreement and the door of freedom will be open. But what does Moses say in Exodus chapter 10, verse 25? He tells Pharaoh, no, no, you're going to give into our hands sacrifices and burnt offerings so that we may offer them to the Lord, our God, and our livestock as well will go with us. We're not going to leave a hoof behind. We're not going to leave anything behind. Now picture it if you had some Israeli politician there today. Take the most extreme one and take your favorite politician, whoever it is. They would say, Moses, have you lost your mind? We've been slaves for 210 years and we can go free. Give them the animals, who cares? Come on, you gotta acquiesce to this very unimportant marginal condition. Gotta compromise a little bit. Moses, what is this extremism and this fanaticism? Let them have the flocks and let's get the heck out of here. But no, Moses, the greatest of all Jewish leaders, he refuses. There will be no compromise because we're not speaking here about just freedom. The liberation of Am Yisrael, it's not a nationalist struggle for secular freedom. This is a religious struggle against the same Pharaoh who says, I don't know who the Lord is. I'm not going to obey him. I'm not going to let the people go. And so our goal is to break him totally. We can't let him dictate any terms to us. We want maximum Kiddush Hashem. We want to break them. That's what the Exodus is all about. It's all about Kiddush Hashem. So you can't have compromise. You can't have Paro dictating any terms, no matter how insignificant it may seem. 
There has to be total surrender. And to talk that way today, that makes you an extremist because you're not willing to compromise. If you're not willing to compromise, you're a fanatic, you're an extremist. Well, that means Moses was a fanatic and extremist, but he sets the tone for the Jewish people throughout the generations. So we see here that it's so much different than when we look for today. I mean, we're always looking at politics. Bibi's a politician. Everybody knows it. And politics isn't going to do it. It's not going to cut it. We see how the redemption works. It's not through politics and no one had to be slick and speaking really smoothly and being diplomatic and all that. That's not the leadership that's going to bring the redemption. It's going to bring tragedy. We see in these parshiot that deal with the Exodus, how it's going to happen. And of course, that makes really more sense. Did we really think the redemption is going to come by voting for somebody like Bibi and somehow getting a right-wing coalition and maybe we'll be able to pass a couple of laws and, you know, maybe even one day we'll be allowed to pray and harabayit along with the Muslims if we really, really try. Obviously, that's not the way it's going to happen. Or maybe this, we're going to pass a law in the Supreme Court if we're allowed to um, build a temple or set up a Sanhedrin. Yeah, 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 that's what we're going to do. We're going to raise a bill to the Supreme Court if we're allowed to establish a Sanhedrin instead of them. I mean, do we really think that's going to happen? Well, if we keep voting this way and this continues this way, another Knesset vote, another right-wing coalition, left-wing coalition, it's all the same crap anyway. Did we really think that a glorious redemption is going to come out of that? Who says the redemption has to come through the Knesset anyway? Is that written somewhere? After all, the redemption is a revolution. Revolutions don't come inside the system. They come outside the system, outside the mechanism. And there's more. I mean, this thing just keeps going. Then you have the 10th and the final plague striking Egypt. In every home, a firstborn dies. There's not a house in which there is no dead. And it's midnight. And Pharaoh is rushing through the streets in his pajamas and he's crying out to Moses, leave already, leave in the midst of my people. Get out, serve your God, just take your flocks, take your herds, I don't care anymore, just go. Ah, at last, total surrender, unconditional surrender. Leave now. He's telling us to leave now immediately. Leave now, leave now immediately in the middle of the night. Okay, surely the moment has come. I mean, even the worst fanatic and extremist would say, okay, yeah, okay, we agree. But listen to what Moses says to Pharaoh, and this is in the Tanchuma, Parshat Bo. He says, are we thieves that we should leave in the middle of the night? No, we're going to leave here with our heads held high so everybody could see it in the eyes of all of Egypt. We're not leaving like thieves in the middle of the night. And so Moses, the extremist, is laying down yet another rule of Kiddush Hashem. It can't be hidden. That's the whole point of it. It's not something that's discreet. It's done openly with a proclamation before the nations with trumpets and drums, you invite NBC and CBS and Fox and you invite everybody to watch it without fear and no attempt to keep a low profile and not to worry about antagonizing the nations. And so we see how far away we are, the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leaders of today, even the rabbis, when it comes to how a Jew should conduct himself uh, in the national sphere, they would be bashing and trashing Moshe Rabbeinu my God, it's scary to think what they'd say about him. And so what to them is a fanatic, for us, it's authentic Judaism. You see, when you have no principles, then it's easy to be flexible. It's easy to compromise. Because you don't believe in anything. The only time you don't compromise is when your own interests are threatened. 
Those who believe in nothing will always be ready to compromise since they stand on no principle that is stable and, and untouchable. And one more thing along the same lines. You know, there's a famous question. Why did Hashem harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did he machbid it libo, it says? He hardened his heart. He made him stubborn. He took away his free choice, basically. And that goes against the rules that man does have free choice almost every time. Why was here Pharaoh denied free choice where it says explicitly, I will harden his heart? Well, this is one of those philosophical questions and a lot of commentators talk about it. And the answer of the Rambam is that when you reach a certain point of abuse, of cruelty that the Egyptians did to the Jewish people, when you're using Jewish babies' bodies as bricks to build your walls, you're going to have to be punished. You certainly don't dictate terms of release and you're going to get punished 20 times over. And so Hashem maximizes the plagues, the makot, on Egypt for the cruelty. And so the parallel is obvious. What the Hamas did to the Jewish babies, to the Jewish women, to Jewish men on October 7th, there is no place for mercy and there's no place for them to dictate terms to us in any way. We're in a war to the end. And any talking head or any Israeli general that claims there is no military solution, anybody who says that are saying in essence that we should stick our necks out and get shechted. How could anybody think that anything less than the total obliteration of anything having to do with the Hamas, or Gaza for that matter, is decreeing another massacre on the Jewish people. It's in the Hamas doctrine to slaughter the Jew. They don't just want a state, they want to slaughter every Jew on the face of the earth. But getting back to what happened in Egypt, another rule of redemption, since the first redemption is the blueprint for the final redemption, what else did we see this past Shabbat and Parshat Bo? What were the highlight? of the whole Pasha is the Korban Pesach. In Exodus chapter 12, Hashem says, speak to the assembly of Israel saying, on the 10th day of this month, that is the 10th day of Nisan, everyone should take for themselves a lamb. Every Jew has to take a lamb and has to bind it for four days. Now the lamb was more than just an animal. It was the very deity of the Egyptians. It was this holy creature for them who the Egyptians bowed to and whose meat they would never let touch their mouth. And yet every Jew is commanded now to take this lamb, this Egyptian God, this deity of their masters, tie it to their beds, bind it up. And when the outraged Egyptian masters ask, what are you doing? You're going to tell them, well, we're going to slaughter this lamb, your God, and we're going to eat it. But it doesn't stop there. Not only do the Jews have to desecrate this Egyptian God and taunt him with the sight of his deity being bound up, but then to add salt to the wound, what does it say in Exodus chapter 12, verse 8? And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire. Don't eat it partially cooked, not boiled in water, but roasted with fire. Its heads with its legs and with its insides complete. That is, you want the whole thing complete, roasted like a shawarma, turning around there like a shish kebab. Don't dare cut it up and put it in a pot because then it won't be for sure that you're eating the Egyptian deity. So we're putting it in their face. Now, why are we doing this? Because it's not enough that the Egyptians went through those Eser Makot, the 10 plagues, because they could come out of it saying, you know, that God of Israel, he's pretty good. He's working all the time. He's got control. But that doesn't mean that their deity isn't worth anything. Maybe their deity is also something. They might be thinking that, that their deity is worth something too. So what do you have to do? You have to take their deity and you got to humiliate it. You got to make it into nothing because it's not enough that Hashem is great. You have to prove that Hashem is one. 
Hashem Yisrael, Hashem Echad. How do you show he's Echad, he's one, when there's no other one? How do you show there's no other one? You have to take their deity, their God, bound it up and humiliate it and destroy it. That's how you raise the banner of Hashem. And so this is the nail in the coffin because all the other makot prove God's greatness, but this proves that there is only one God and there is no other. And again, this is all done openly to humiliate their idols as much as possible, to break them. And look how far we are from this concept. A couple of weeks ago, when the idea of soldiers in Gaza drew graffiti on the walls of the demolished buildings, verses from the Torah, they wrote, Shema Yisrael Hashem Lokeinu, all kinds of verses on Nikama and how Hashem is great. The rabbis, not just the commanders, but the rabbis of the IDF said that the soldiers have to wash it off. They have to wash it off. Why? Because it's not nice to insult another religion. Not nice to insult another religion? Do you eat the afikomen on Passover? That's what the Pesach sacrifice is all about. It's a commemoration of insulting another religion, of taking the Egyptian deity and shechting it. Imagine that. That's what they were worried about. They were insulting Islam by writing graffiti on the walls, by writing verses of Torah on the walls of Gaza, as if it wasn't Islam that drove these Arabs to do what they did. It wasn't the religion of Islam that gives them the fervor to commit these atrocities. No, you can't insult another religion. And you can get arrested in Israel on that very easily. It's a charge called Elbondat. Elbondat. It's called insulting another religion. The whole holiday of Passover, the name of the holiday Passover is the Pesach sacrifice where you're mocking the religion of the Egyptians. Yeah, we've grown pretty far from these ideas, haven't we? The exile, it's turned us into cowering, apologizing, quivering nebuchs. And finally, one more lesson we learned from the Exodus, and that's the lesson of collective punishment. Yes, collective punishment. When you punish the nations, there's going to be collateral damage. And how do we see that? Well, during the plague of the firstborn, it says like this, that the firstborn were slain from the firstborn of Paro until the firstborn who was in the dungeon. And the rabbis ask, why should the firstborn son that was in the Egyptian prison, why should he also have to die? I mean, what did he do wrong? He's also suffering from the Egyptian regime. He didn't do anything bad to Jews. And the rabbis answer, because with every decree that Paro decreed, they were happy about it. While the Jews were suffering and in bondage, they rejoiced, just like the Gazans were cheering when they saw the hostages being brought into Gaza and given baklawa. They themselves, they weren't terrorists, but they were rooting for the terrorists, and therefore they're guilty by association. And that's why the firstborn in the dungeon in Egypt was slain, because he was guilty by association, just like these Gazans, who don't have to physically be the ones to harm the Jews, but the very identification with the terrorists, that's enough to make you guilty. And so this whole concept of purity of arms, what a horrible, immoral, unethical concept that is. What do you mean purity of arms? Tahar and Neshek. There's nothing pure about arms. There's nothing Tahor about Neshek. You hear it all the time that people are bragging, proud of it, that the IDF takes into account civilian casualties more than any other army. We're so ethical. That's not ethical. That's a perversion of ethics. Every time a Jewish soldier falls because they took into account civilian casualties, that is a perversion of ethics. That's, that is the needless murder of a Jewish soldier. All the Arabs in Gaza aren't worth the life of one Jewish soldier. 
the other day we had a family gathering and I heard my daughters-in-law talking and their husbands are in the army in Azar and, and so is half the population right now is either on the Northern Front or the Southern Front or in Janine. And another large portion of Israelis are also exiled from their homes in the South and in the North. So this is not a normal time. Anyway, the women were talking about something that was hard to even listen to. They were explaining how all the wives who have husbands who are in Gaza especially, the biggest thing they fear is somebody in uniform coming towards their door to knock on their door and notify them that their husband has been killed. Because before the name of a soldier who fell in battle, it's publicized in the news, you have to notify the family first. And so an IDF representative, a soldier, will come and knock on the door and every Jewish woman who has a husband in this war is terrified of seeing some IDF soldier coming towards her door. And there are stories when the wife already sees the soldier coming towards her door and she knows what it's for and she starts breaking down already. And it's heart-wrenching. And they told the story where one of these soldiers, he's in Gaza, and he wanted to send his wife flowers before Shabbat. So he bought flowers and had them delivered. And the person delivering them was in a uniform, an army uniform. I don't know why. And, and so his wife is in the house. She sees a soldier coming towards the door to knock on the door. And she starts shrieking. She thinks this person's coming to notify her that her husband died in battle. She doesn't know he's coming to deliver flowers. And so that was a big mistake that this person comes with a uniform on. Anyway, this woman who my daughter's-in-law knew her, she got the scare of her life. And I'm telling you these stories for one reason. When you're in a war, you're going to have sacrifices. Jews are going to die. There's not much you can do about it. And everyone who does is a martyr and he's automatically in Gan Eden. But if the reason for his death has anything to do with the fact that he took into consideration the Gazan population of the civilians, that is a tragedy. That is a perversion of ethics. It's immoral and it's cruel. You're being merciful to the Gazan civilians, but you're being cruel to the wives of these idea of soldiers and the families of these soldiers who have to live with that. And on that, the sages teach us that he who has mercy upon the cruel will someday be cruel upon the merciful. Moving on to something else, last week we talked about the Hague hearings in South Africa. South Africa has decided to take the lead as the next Jew-hating nation. Yeah, mighty South Africa, that cultural center of the universe, the source of great intellectuals and scholars. The cannibals of South Africa are accusing Israel of war crimes. And so what a surprise that the South African blacks are joining up with the Hamas. You know, I remember back in the 80s when South Africa was in the hands of the whites and you had apartheid there. And all the time, Israel was getting bashed for their alliance with South Africa. How could they ally with these South African whites, apartheid, racists. That just proves that Israel is also racist because they're in bed with the South African government. And that was a big issue on campus. I mean, the Jews were in the forefront of the anti-apartheid marches and demonstrations and Mandela. And I remember Rabbi Kahana always getting hit with that question on talk radio shows, on campus. They'd ask him, how could Israel support a apartheid regime like South Africa. Why are they allied to this horrible country? And Rabbi Kahana, without backing down, without apologizing, he always said the same thing. He said, okay, 
Apartheid might be wrong. It's an obnoxious policy. That's true. But having said that, why would you want to march for the cause of a black government in South Africa? First of all, Israel, they don't have too many allies. So South Africa is an important ally for them. It gives them uranium and other things. I don't remember what they got from South Africa. But the point is this. Israel has very few allies. They have to do what's in their self-interest. That's number one. Number two is, why would any Jew who cares about Israel want to support a black government in South Africa and take down the white apartheid government when you know it will be replaced by the ANC, which are vehemently anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. And so you have to be crazy to march for the rights of the blacks in South Africa when you know what they'll do when they take power. And so the rabbi emphasized over and over again, how can one aid any people, whether they're oppressed or not oppressed, apartheid or not, if you know that they're going to be an avowed opponent of the Jewish state, you don't have to help him. Because the rabbi knew that if the blacks of South Africa receive their independence, they'll join the ranks of the overwhelming number of black and third world countries who would vote to do away with Israel. And Rabbi Kahana wrote several articles on this issue. I just want to quote here what he said. He said, let it be clear that the blacks of South Africa, should they receive their independence, will join the ranks of the overwhelming number of black and third world countries who vote to do away with Israel. Black South Africa will be a leading opponent of Israel. So here you go. The rabbi was right again, not because he was a prophet, because he was smart. He knew history and he gave several examples of it. We had a situation in Algeria where the oppressed people then were the Arabs. The Arabs were being oppressed by the Europeans. And so even though they might have been right in their struggle for self-determination and freedom, but they're openly aligned with the forces that were hostile to the state of Israel. They're against Israel. So why should Jews be rooting for Algeria to get their independence? Yeah, they were fighting a colonist, white European power. But so what? Should Jews have supported the rights of a people to freedom, knowing that once it was achieved, these people would then have the power to join the enemies of the Jewish people and state? Of course not. Any normal human being would say, no, I'm not going to help the Arabs in Algeria to achieve their independence so they can bash Israel. And you had the same thing in Zimbabwe, which used to be called Rhodesia. Rhodesia was a state under white colonists and supremacists. And in the end, it was overthrown. And in its place, a black government emerged. Now, Rhodesia was being ruled by the French, which happened to be an ally of Israel for a while. But when the blacks overthrew them and it became Zimbabwe, they voted for the dismantling of Israel, cheering on the PLO. And so because Rabbi Kahana knew the history, he realized that what happened in Zimbabwe was the model for what's going to happen in South Africa if the ANC took over. And that's exactly what we see today. And I want to read the end of an article he wrote on the subject in April 1985. A Jew who moves to help the blacks take over South Africa, he votes to make yet another enemy in the UN and the African continent for Israel. But this one will be a big enemy, a major one, blessed with untold mineral wealth and uranium. Jewish ethics? No, Jewish sickness, Jewish madness, ethical suicide. And that is not Jewish. And so as the rabbi predicted, we see that South Africa is spearheading the propaganda war against Israel, accusing them of war crimes. Now, regarding this issue of South Africa, Rabbi Kahana was in a debate with Alan Dershowitz. This is actually the second debate between them. It was in Boston. And the apartheid issue came up. Uh, South Africa 
This is again in 1985 when it was a big issue. And Dershowitz, being the liberal he is, is very much against it. And he thinks all Jews should be marching against apartheid just as they march against Soviet Jewry oppression. Dershowitz's point of view is that a Jew, he's got to march for all causes, not just Jewish causes. And apartheid is a racist policy and the Jews should march against it just like they should march against any racist policies. So this is what Rabbi Kahana said about that. The problem is that in this particular debate, the sound wasn't good. It's very echoey. But I hope you can try to fight through it and listen to what the rabbi's saying. I believe that this question of Jews taking up the rights of blacks in South Africa and so on will be one of the major burning issues of our time. I want to tell you something. It's not a question of apartheid. The question is, is it good for the Jews? What kind of a government will rule South Africa if the African National Congress takes over? That's the practical question. And I tell you it will be a viciously anti-Israel government. It will be one which will join the rest of Black Africa in being almost totally anti-Israel. The question to me here is, is it good for the Jews? I despise the South African government, but I am not about to go and make that government fall, knowing that the government that takes its place will be one that doesn't support Israel, as this one does. Well, that's Rabbi Kahana making a lot of sense and telling us what will happen in South Africa when the blacks take over. And that's what we see today. And yeah, I remember all those Jews marching with those anti-apartheid signs on campus. Those Jews always looking for a Jewish cause to support. Gee, I didn't intend on speaking so much about South Africa today, but you know, it just happened. But it is kind of comical getting condemned by Africa. There's a pastor, his name is David James Manning. He's a black man, and he speaks to the black community. And this is what he had to say about Africa. Black people had Africa, that big old continent over there. They never built one boat that was seaworthy. Not one. There's not one monument in Africa, in all of Africa. There are no great cities that were built. Black men built nothing. No sewer system. No houses above one level, and none of them made out of stone. All of them made out of grass and wood. Black men, before the white man ever got to Africa, the worst thing that could ever happen to South Africa was when they gave it to Nelson Mandela and black folk. That was a great nation. Now, notwithstanding apartheid was wrong, we all know it's wrong, I'm against it. There should have been some other resolution, though, than turning it over to Nelson Mandela. Disease, AIDS, and crime is running wild in Johannesburg. They're killing one another over there. They're dying of sickness. The government is mismanaged. The people who ran the nation are now leaving the nation because black folk don't know how to run no nation. That was Pastor David James Manning 
just telling it like it is. That's it for me today. And just to remind the listeners, I give a class in Tanakh, in the Bible, and it's so important to learn Bible. The Bible is our story. The Tanakh is the story of the Jewish people. The story of Moses, of King David, Solomon. So let's get back to the sources. Let's bring some spirituality into our lives and check out my classes in Tanakh. You can find it by Googling Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, or you can find it on my new website, which is called LennyGoldberg.com, LennyGoldberg.com. And there you'll find a link to the Bible classes, to these podcasts and other interesting articles and videos. It seems sometimes like the only people read the Bible are the Christians. They're getting back to the Bible. Shouldn't we, the people of the book, get back to it? And so join me in my classes because when we learn Bible, we make these biblical figures come to life. It's like they stepped off the pages of the Tanakh and came to life. That's what happens when you learn Bible properly. So check that out at Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. See you next week.